Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A single word sums it up. Latinx strives to be a gender-neutral adjective for a racial identity. The X replaces the O or A that would, in the original Spanish, make it grammatically masculine or feminine. Only 4% of American Hispanics say they use it. Yet in 2018, the New York Times launched a column dedicated to Latinx communities. The word is found in think tank reports, and since Joe Biden became president, it started creeping into White House press releases and at least one of his own speeches. A term once championed by esoteric academics has gone mainstream, and it's not the only example of the advance of left-wing identity politics into mainstream institutions, companies, and academia. How did a set of previously radical ideas about identity and social justice leap from campus to large parts of American life? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how is wokeness changing America? American liberalism, with its notions of individual over group identity, of universal rights, of trust in democracy, and above all, of vigorous open debate, is under threat. The most obvious danger is from the Trumpian right, with its denigration of the rule of law. The attack from the progressive left is harder to grasp, but it's a potent one. A new style of politics has emerged from America's universities, and this progressive revolution is changing the way that many Americans view the world. In this episode, we'll hear from a best-selling author on unconscious racism, try to learn some lessons from the panic over political correctness three decades ago, and speak to an entrepreneur who believes corporate wokeness endangers American power. With me to discuss all of this are Idris Kaloon, our Washington correspondent, and John Fasman, our US digital editor. John, how are you? We've been swapping messages this morning, and I gather that your house has been flooded owing to the unbelievable amount of rain that Hurricane Ida has dumped on the East Coast. Is everything okay? Everything is okay. Thank you for asking. Um, We live just north of the Bronx in Lower Westchester County. And our house happens to be on a, on a low-lying street between two sizable hills. And the sewer system backed up into our basement. So it's an ugly mess. But uh, we're healthy, we're alive, and we're we are dealing with a mess. It's just a reminder that if we're going to see once-in-a-century storms thrice every decade, cities really are not prepared for that. Well, I'm sorry to hear you're having such a tough time with that. Idris, how's it going with you in D.C.? It's going well. Not much to complain about. You know, not as much rain as in New York. So I'm sorry. We're having to deal with that, Fasman. 
That doesn't sound very fun. You have been very busy this week, though, Idris, because you've written the cover story of The Economist, which is about the threats to liberalism principally from the left. I think we ought to underline right at the top of this show that most of the time when we discuss the future of liberalism, we're worrying about the threats from the right. I mean, we did that a lot under the Trump presidency, and and rightly so. And I think in the kind of hierarchy of threats, uh, the threat from the left and from campus radicalism comes below Um, the threat from the Trumpian right and the kind of resurgent nationalist right in America. But almost as a result of that, I think quite often liberals don't talk about it so much. And your cover story this week is kind of a corrective to that. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the sort of deep polarization within America has led the left liberal camp to not discuss this sort of movement because you don't want to be conflated with Tucker Carlson when you were talking about these issues. And I think that's made it a bit harder to talk about. But also, as you said, when you sort of sketch out the threats to American democracy and and order them, you know, you have, I think, Trumpian authoritarianism and its ancestors that I think are, are pretty top of mind, rightly so. You have the threat from the Chinese model of technocratic authoritarianism. And then you have this sort of nebulous thing that people can't even decide what to name that ultimately just hinders the ability to to discuss these issues forthrightly. There's been a lot of talk of, of the great awakening and woke is the word that gets used most often. Before we dive into the meat of the episode this week, do you want to give us a definition, even attempt a definition at what woke means and what wokeness is? I can attempt one. I think that part of the issue has been that without a clear name for this nebulous set of stuff, it's been difficult to talk about in the first place. Wokeness used to be a term that people sort of used sincerely. It's now become a bit of a pejorative. But the alternatives are also not particularly appealing. There's left liberal identity politics, the successor ideology, which both feel a bit academic, or there are alternatively sort of social justice activism or anti-racism, which suggests that opponents are pro-racism and anti-social justice, which you know are also not, not helpful in, in that way. So I've sometimes tried to use social justice consciousness or wokeness with that preamble aside. I think that it is primarily a mode of understanding the world that is focused on power structures and that thinks about various binaries between oppressed and oppressor. And these are various axes, one for race, one for gender, immigration status, et cetera, et cetera. But it centers power relations as the center of its understanding of the world. And that has a different set of consequences. One is that it sees all disparities that exist between oppressed people and non-oppressed people as rooted in systemic decisions, intentional systems, basically. And it finds that systemic deconstruction is the necessary remedy for ameliorating these disparities. It's very focused on the way that people talk about these issues and and language and the, and the precise language that is used, and sometimes over and above its focus on policy, which is, I think, an interesting quirk. Uh, it, it does share some commonalities with liberalism in that it aspires to a vision of equality, although, the, again, the, the term that's used is, is now equity, and an end to hereditary privilege, essentially. Um, but the way that it pursues it is by illiberal means. It sees 
you know, the freedom of speech, the marketplace of ideas, individualism, universalism, meritocracy, and, and, and all the rest as, as cover for maintaining a system of oppression that exists. That's my sort of long-winded uh, definition of it. I don't think that was long-winded at all. I think given the terrain you're trying to cover, it's quite succinct and also really useful to define terms early because one of the ways that people use woke sometimes is to mean stuff I don't like or stuff that's a bit too left-wing for me. Your definition is much more uh, precise than that, I think. And you've been speaking to one of the most prominent exponents of that way of thinking. Yeah, for the piece, I had the chance to talk to Robin D'Angelo, who, along with Ibram Kendi, has become, I think, one of the the most prominent popularizers of this way of thinking. She gained quite a lot of prominence after the killing of George Floyd and the publication of her book, uh, White Fragility, which is rooted in basically how white people might subconsciously advance narratives that are harmful to black people. And she has a subsequent book that she's just published called Nice Racism, in which she asserts that white progressives cause more harm to African-Americans on a daily basis than white nationalists do. White nationalists in many ways are much more explicit and clear about where they're coming from. They're not really in denial about any of that. And odds are on a daily basis, people of color are not interacting with white nationalists. On a daily basis, they're interacting with well-meaning white people like me. And there's a theme that I hear over and over, particularly from Black people who are one of a few in an organization. That theme over and over is exhaustion. So who's causing that exhaustion on a daily basis? The well-meaning, well-intended, but unaware white people that surround so many people of color in the workplace. It's just a different part of a continuum. It all contributes to a fabric that's debilitating. You know, there, there's a reason that Black people, for example, have shorter lifespans and more health issues. The chronic stress of that daily kind of racism that's more insidious and harder to name and get your hands on, more easily denied. Uh, and, and it's on me to work to figure out what it, my forms of upholding the system look like. And, and so that that weathering hypothesis that, that you describe, what are the components, the dings that are accumulating in, in the sort of daily stressors? Yeah. So there's a concept of um, allostatic load, which is what happens when people are exposed to chronic trauma. A really common example that's been expressed to me is, you know, turning on the news. You're getting ready to go to for work. You turn on the news, another shooting of an unarmed black man. You have to take that in. It doesn't stand alone. It's not isolated. It brings up a lifetime of that kind of threat, uh, that potential that's in every encounter with law enforcement. And then you have to go into this overwhelmingly white workplace where, no one's acknowledging it. Uh, people are talking about incredibly trivial things, you know, in the break room. And you're carrying this. That's an example of the wearing down. Yeah. Um, in, in the book, it's interesting. You write that there is no choir to preach to of, of anti-racist white people. Is it possible in your view for a white person, even one who sort of sincerely does the work over a period of years to ever ever not be in some way implicated in racism? It's not going to end in my lifetime. 
Uh, so no, I don't think it's possible not to be implicated. We are inside of it. And as someone who for 20 plus years had a, a fairly atypical job as a white person, which is walking into rooms of mostly white people and trying to talk about racism, I recognize many escape valves. And one of them is this, well, I've already arrived. You know, the moment I think, I don't need this. It's not me. I'm not part of the problem. I'm going to be complacent. Look where we are in this society. Post having our first Black president, we are in many ways in the pre-civil rights era, voting rights restrictions, literal bans in some places uh, on acknowledging the existence of racism, uh, bans on teaching a full history, a multiple perspective on history. There are bans now uh, proposed on teaching the civil rights movement. So if I think I'm the choir, I'm going to be complacent around all that. And, and we can see what that post-civil rights era complacency has led us. Where do you see it going from here? Do you think that, for example, American companies are currently trying to rethink the way that they do business? And are they moving in a positive direction, even if you think it's slowly? Well, I hope so. The challenge there is the consistency. It it, it is not going to change a culture to have a one-time presentation or discussion. It has to be truly integrated across the, the organization. In 2021, you have to consider a basic qualification of the workplace is the ability to engage in these conversations with some openness and some nuance. That is different than we all have to agree or see it the same way, but we have to be willing to reflect and to receive new information that might challenge the way we currently see the world. The majority of white people, upwards of 75%, live segregated lives. Yet I've never met a white person who doesn't have a very strong opinion on racism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so companies have to, one, truly commit and sustain the exploration. As long as it's a a one-off or uh, I do get a little nervous as soon as it starts being a marketing tool. Do, Do you worry that some of this interest has been signaling and skin deep? Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, that is one of the challenges for for all of us. Niceness doesn't cut it. You know, being a warm, friendly person who smiles at your coworkers is not going to interrupt systemic racism. Idris, one thing that struck me about D'Angelo, both in this conversation and in what I've read of her work, is that she essentially discounts individual agency, except insofar as that agency goes toward entirely pulling down our current system. Do you find that persuasive or do you worry that that might be that might be somewhat discouraging, almost a a sort of nihilistic view of what people can do as individuals? I personally find it discouraging. I think that part of D'Angelo's move is to discount the importance of intent and you know, intent of the speaker matters less than the perceived slight on on the hands of, of the person receiving it. You see that quite a lot in the way that, that people discuss this. I mean, there, there's a certain damned if you do, damned if you don't quality to the way that she thinks about these issues. There's another section of the book where she says that it could be harmful uh, for white people to over smile at black people at Whole Foods too solicitously. 
her, you know, her books sell, and I think that the people there's a certain quality to it that the people admire. But in in my mind, it resonates a lot closer to a, a secular religion with a model of whiteness as original sin and these sorts of public expiations as a sort of ritual self-denunciation. One thing I've noticed is with, with her work and Kendi, although they operate in very different ways, is that they include a more expansive definition of what racism is. They don't see racism actually as, as pejorative as I think most people do. They think of racism as sort of the air we breathe. And in her mind, basically, white people are constantly doing racism in almost every utterance that they that they have. And in Kendi's view, sort of any participation in a system that allows for discrimination is also participation in a racist society. I'm glad you made the religion comparison because I think that's extremely apt. The focus is on acknowledgement of sin. And I think that may not be the most productive way for people to direct their energies, right? If you were to list the reasons why non-white people suffer worse outcomes than white people in America, being smiled at at Whole Foods is pretty far down the list. If you had a real desire to improve the outcomes for non-white people in America, you would probably better spend your energy fighting to, you know, end the drug war or or improve zoning restrictions or make sure that more housing is built in expensive cities. Not if you are a well-intentioned white person thinking about whether your own actions might inadvertently have harmed someone that you just passed on the street. She has a PhD in which she studied discourses, right? And and that's the arena in which she thinks these issues are, are decided. And I think you see that a lot on university campuses as well. I think one distinction between the new left and the old left is the axis of oppression that is very seldomly discussed or theorized about is is class and education level. And in my mind, it's actually it's that's never been more important in determining long run outcomes than today. I think the other sort of sets of discriminations have certainly exist, but they've receded in importance. Kendi, though, I think is different. Kendi is straightforwardly focused on on policy, and he what his move is instead to say is that all sorts of ostensibly race-neutral policies are really not because they're they're still tolerating disparities in uh, in outcomes. So I think people often lump them together, but I think that they approach these issues very, very differently. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in just a minute to explore the panic over political correctness in the 1990s and what lessons can be learned from it today. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a finer time to subscribe to The Economist. If you don't already, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. This week, you'll find our analysis of how the global economy is adapting to the Delta variant. We examine the likely ramifications of a near total ban on abortion in Texas. Our Russia correspondent investigates how Vladimir Putin's henchmen are targeting university students. And there's an amazing obituary of an Italian war surgeon who believed healthcare should be a human right. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. The phrase politically correct was relatively unknown in America until 1990. It's watching you. It is the politically correct crowd that monitors just about anything and everything that might hurt someone's feelings. It exploded onto the American consciousness following a New York Times piece on student activism in Berkeley. Pundits queued up to denounce modish left-wing opinions on race, feminism and the environment. 
What does PC stand for? To me, it stands for petty crybaby. Political correctness appears to have originated as a term used among progressives themselves to tease humorless colleagues. The use of the word correct in this way borrowed from Chairman Mao. Uh, if you have cause to refer to your pet, it is now your animal companion. But in a few short months, it jumped from obscure left-wing banter to become derisive shorthand for a cluster of ideas circulating at elite universities. And I think some of you uh, are, know that if you uh, make reference to, to short people, uh, they are apparently uh, the vertically challenged. So <laughs> keep, keep this in mind. A young former Reagan advisor named Dinesh D'Souza became one of its most prominent critics upon publication of his book, Illiberal Education, in 1991. He argued that admissions policies that took into account applicants' race were producing, quote, a new segregation on campus. And they tried to do this by regulating the public discussion of a whole series of controversial questions surrounding race and ethnicity to a lesser degree, gender and sexual orientation. D'Souza's polemic identified a real shift in academia. Humanities professors, influenced by European thinkers like Michel Foucault, were teaching that knowledge is a product of power. D'Souza's attack on political correctness got a surprising endorsement. We find free speech under assault throughout the United States, including on some college campuses. Down in the polls and running for re-election, President George Bush took a populist swipe at campus leftists in a speech to students at the University of Michigan. And although the movement arises from the laudable desire to sweep away the debris of racism and sexism and hatred, it replaces old prejudice with new ones. The Economist felt Bush was attacking a straw man. They've invited people to look for an insult in every word, gesture, action, and in their own Orwellian way, crusades that demand correct behavior crush diversity in the name of diversity. The paper's verdict at the time was that the high watermark of political correctness had, quote, almost certainly passed. But Bush was ahead of his time in attempting to turn the PC row to electoral advantage. It allowed conservatives to argue that the liberal elite had become separated from ordinary folk and was stopping them from speaking their mind. The idea gained extra resonance among Republicans once a cerebral African-American law professor was installed in the White House. I think the big problem this country has is being politically correct. When Donald Trump launched his presidential bid, he updated the attack on political correctness with devastating effect. He didn't just mock PC, he actually said offensive things. Framed as resistance to liberal thought control, he could make bullying appear like bravery. It was a playbook borrowed straight from Dinesh D'Souza. Now head of a conservative media outfit peddling conspiracies about liberal elites, he was convicted of campaign finance violations and then pardoned by President Trump himself. Idris, the story of political correctness and its rise and the concern that the right had over political correctness in the 90s and some of the demagoguing that politicians did on the subject is often remembered now, I think, as a cautionary tale. Why is woke different, or is it different even? You know, there are some people who do think that this is just the latest moral panic that we've had over what college students have been thinking. What I sought to 
set out in the piece was that actually this time was different. So when I was first exposed to these set of ideas when I was in college, I, I was first asked about my pronouns in 2012, probably. I was under the... You're a real early adopter, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was confused at first, but I, I, I picked it up as everyone else did. Um, but what I thought at the time was that it was just another campus phenomenon and it would stay there. So not only was there a clear change in campus life, particularly at elite institutions, but there was a simultaneous change in the way that white liberals, particularly college-educated ones, began to think about issues of race and oppression. It used to be the case that Democrats and Republicans were actually fairly identical on questions that political scientists use to measure what they call racial resentment. So whether or not the present day um, situation of African Americans was due to discrimination or whether or not it was due to hard work. Basically, if you poll Democrats and Republicans before 2013, you saw fairly identical answers. Starting around then, you started to see a massive divergence on those issues. You see also similar divergence on issues of immigration, issues of gender, etc. Something changed. And I think after the killing of George Floyd, also one thing I document in the piece is that there is now a Walmart Center for Racial Equity. Um, that exists, right? You know, <laughs> which is, I, I think David Foster Wallace might have put something like that in Infinite Jest um, as a joke. Um, but within newsrooms, a debate about how to cover issues, whether or not objectivity is sort of is outmoded. And you also see within schools, out of the 12 chapters in California's new mathematics framework, two of them are devoted to social justice in the teaching, again, of, of math. Um, I think, to me, it's self-evident that this stuff has really actually escaped in a way that the panic over political correctness in the 1990s just didn't. David Foster Wallace, of course, being the brilliant novelist and, to my mind, even more brilliant essayist. Let me play devil's advocate and old man simultaneously for a bit. So the Please, yeah. old man bit is that I was an English major at Brown University in the mid-90s and was surrounded by, you know, the sort of Foucault-worshipping professors and students. This period feels very different, right? That method of interrogating literature and society felt like an academic exercise. What's happening now doesn't. On the other hand, it's no bad thing that they gave $100 million to try to ameliorate the problem of racism. And it's true that you have people who have been drummed out of positions fairly or unfairly for expressions of racism. On the other hand, actually expressing racism carries a certain cost right now. And I think that that sense intensified after the George Floyd protests, when America awoke to the fact that police have been killing African-Americans with impunity for a very long time and we're tired of it. So I think that there is a lot to worry about as far as the methods that these activists are using to bring society toward the goals they want to see. But the goals they want to see are, are seem to me fairly praiseworthy. I mean, one argument for everybody relaxing a bit about the spread of wokeness would be, well, this is a contest of ideas and liberals are in favor of contests of ideas. And so, you know, this is just people not liking the fact that ideas they disagree with are, are spreading in this contest that they say they favor. I, I think that's wrong in this case because part of the package is a certain stifling of debate. So, I mean, if you look at polling that the Knight Foundation conducted in 2019, they did an extensive poll on American university campuses in which they found that two-thirds of students said that their campus climate precluded students from expressing their true opinions because their classmates might find them offensive. That is a real problem, it seems to me, uh, not a phantom one. 
John, I think one thing that that statistic gets at is something that Deval Patrick brought up in his sadly short-lived presidential campaign. He said something that stuck with me, which is that we need to find a way for the woke to make room for the waking, right? What that means, I think, is that to have social condemnation with no route to social forgiveness really doesn't work. And that, to me, is the more pernicious aspect. There doesn't seem to be a way for people to redeem themselves, although there is a way for people to condemn themselves. I agree with that. I think that to give an example of how the stuff has changed, I mean, I, I quote a bit in the piece, Barack Obama, and the contrast between the way that he speaks and spoke about these issues and and how Biden speaks now. I mean, it's quite bracing when you see it. If you remember in 08, when he was running for the first time, there was the controversy over his, his pastor, um, Jeremiah Wright, and he had to give a speech cutting some ties with him. And he said- One of his best speeches, in my view. Yeah, it, it was extraordinary. So th- this is what Barack Obama said in 2008, the standard bearer of the Democratic Party. He said that the speeches were wrong because- Quote, they expressed a profoundly distorted view of this country, a view that sees white racism as endemic and that elevates what is wrong with America above all that we know is right in America. And I, I think that the mainstream Democratic view at this moment is exactly that. Um, and it's not just, I think, for people who might say, well, it was 2008, he was a black man running. He had to say those things. I think he sincerely believes it. In 2019, he gave a speech to, to young Americans and he said, this idea of purity and you're never compromised, and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, you should get over that quickly. The world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. That's post-presidency. He doesn't, he doesn't owe a thing to anybody. He's free. Like that mode of thinking, if he were not Barack Obama, I don't know that he would be sort of a very popular Democrat if he said those sorts of things today. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to talk about how corporate America is grappling with how to respond to social justice ideology and ask whether business leaders are using progressive politics for profit. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As this ideology of social justice activism spreads beyond the academic ivory tower, one of the biggest tests will be in the corporate world. As young employees agitate for change and some consumers threaten boycotts, businesses, especially in the knowledge economy, face some difficult choices. Idris, what did you hear from the people in the corporate world who you spoke to for this piece? I talked to a lot of chief diversity officers at various companies about their efforts and how things have intensified in the months after the killing of George Floyd. Most of them think that the work that companies are doing is helpful to the bottom line. It's helpful to the companies themselves. They're very much in the, in the stakeholder capitalism mode that you've heard quite a lot about. Um, I also had the chance to speak to one entrepreneur, Vivek Ramaswamy, who took a very contrarian view and thought that actually the business world's embrace of some of these social justice tenets was the result of, of basic hypocrisy. And he devoted a book to the subject, which he's called Woke Inc. 
the true story traces back to the 2008 financial crisis. Corporations were the bad guys. And what the old left wanted to do was to redistribute money from those wealthy corporate fat cats to poor people for the benefit of poor people. Agree or not, that is what the old left wanted to do. Yet right around that time, there was the the birth of this newly woke progressive left that actually said the real social ill wasn't poverty. It wasn't economic injustice. No, it was racial injustice and misogyny and bigotry and so on, and maybe even climate change on the list. That was something that actually served as a boon to big business in this country, because if you're Wall Street, for example, Occupy Wall Street is a very tough pill for you to swallow. But the new woke stuff could actually be pretty easy. You applaud diversity and inclusion, put some token minorities on your boards, muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change after you fly on a private jet to Davos. This wasn't actually that bad. And so that's what big business realized is they could enter an arranged marriage with this newly ascendant wing of the left to be able to each get something out of that trade, money and legitimacy in one direction, social cover in the direction of big business. The net result of that act has been the birth of what I think of the illegitimate birth of the woke industrial complex that is a hybrid of effectively big government and big business. That's, I think, actually the big threat to liberty today. And, and I think you know both liberals and conservatives need to wake up to that in different ways. And, and ultimately, you think that arranged marriage is, is not going to be tenable? Well, I think that any marriage in which each side has secret scorn or disdain for the other is naturally not going to end very well. But right now it's working. And I think it's going to be likely to work for some time to come because each side is getting something out of the relationship. Take Silicon Valley, for example. Silicon Valley has effectively decided that it's going to adopt a certain progressive attitude towards determining what does and doesn't stay online. But they don't quite do it for free. They effectively expect that the new Democratic Party, the party that's now in power, look the other way when it comes to leaving their monopoly power intact, something the Democrats were historically skeptical of. So right now, both sides are doing swimmingly well. I think the question is how long that lasts. I personally think that it could last for long enough that we actually are going to need proactive policy solutions and cultural solutions that ultimately disentangle a threat that I think is the defining threat to both liberty and prosperity in America today. You know, what's the clearest example of the perils of a company going down the social justice route that you can think of, of, of this backfiring in, in their mind? I think that there are many perils of many kinds, but perhaps the one that I personally find most frightening is how this actually geopolitically empowers China. So what I think China has realized is that the woke movement is a kink in the U.S. armor that they are able to exploit in a way that bolsters their own standing on the global stage. And here's how. They effectively prevent any company that criticizes the CCP for human rights abuses, like we see in the Xinjiang province, where there's over a million Uyghurs in concentration camps today. Any company that says a word about something like that is not going to be permitted to enter the Chinese market. Full stop. But quietly, they're effectively rolling out the red carpet to companies that actually relentlessly criticize the United States. Nike, Airbnb, Disney, the NBA, BlackRock, you name it, without saying a peep about China. In fact, in many cases, like in Disney's, they're even praising China. What does that do? That creates a false moral equivalence on the global stage between what I think of as Chinese nihilism and American idealism. And that erodes our greatest geopolitical asset of all that is not our nuclear arsenal. It is our moral standing on the global stage. And if you have any doubt about the fact that this is intentional, just listen to what they're saying. Xi Jinping last year when he's pressed by the EU on the human rights crisis in Shenzhen for sterilizations, concentration camps. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is that Black Lives Matter shows that the United States is no better. 
think that's an accident. It's not. Earlier this year, Yang Jiechi, their top diplomat, comes to the Alaska summit here in the United States. And in his opening statement, lectures the U.S. for 15 minutes on how China hopes the U.S. stops slaughtering Black Americans, that's his word, and that China hopes the U.S. does better on human rights. Now, that would be laughable, but for the fact that you don't have to just take it from Xi Jinping. You don't have to take it from Yang Jiechi. You could just listen to Disney. You could listen to Nike. You could listen to the NBA. We in America blissfully thought that we could use our money, the spread of capitalism, to get them to be more like us. And instead, China has turned that on its head. They have effectively used their money, including their access to their market, to get us to be more like them by turning corporations like Disney and Nike into Trojan horses that now undermine the United States from within. John, let's start with you. I think perhaps there's a bit of overstatement there. But nevertheless, is there something in your view to to worry about the way in which corporate America, or at least left-leaning corporate America, has taken up this set of ideas uh, from the boardroom down? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it was a fearless argument. It's always bracing to hear a fearless argument. I appreciate that. (laughs) I think he's got it not quite right. The problem is not that Disney and Nike acknowledge America's social ills. The problem is that they are effectively gutless in standing up to China. I mean, the obvious answer is yes, There are problems with race here. The United States is not putting an entire ethnic group into concentration camps. Whatever racial problems we have here pale in comparison to China's treatment of the Uyghurs. That's what they should be saying. Instead, it's not that they have allowed their their wokeness to weaken them. It's that they have allowed their greed, essentially, to trump their values. I thought the the uncomfortable marriage dynamics were more compelling to me because certainly this sort of campus mode of wokeism is very skeptical of capitalism. And uh, the corporate model is not going to be that, right? I mean, after Black Lives Matter movement took off in June of 2020, there was a photo of Jamie Dimon, the CEO of of JP Morgan, uh, (laughs) taking a knee in front of a bank vault. That's a David Uh, Foster Wallace scene. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I don't think he intended for it to be photographed, but nonetheless, it was. Um, Anyway, so, you know, there's an uncomfortable sort of marriage there. The China point is interesting. I not I not thought about it that way, but I, I do think that there is. You know, I mentioned one gap in the way that the wokeness conceives of the world is its under theorization of class and education. But I think that another gap is that it's it's quite parochially American. It's not terribly concerned, as far as I can tell, with human rights abuses in other parts of the world. In part because there is this sense that there is a sort of POC solidarity and that the oppressed peoples of the world are, are sort of unified in, in their concept of a clear social justice. And that oversteps the actual complications of the world in which all sorts of people who are impressed in one dimension are oppressive in another way. Without sounding too much like a grad student who had to read a lot of Foucault when studying 18th century French history, Idris, I sometimes wonder when reading about uh, woke philosophy or woke activism at American companies, particularly those companies in Silicon Valley, whether what's going on there is really a power struggle between younger employees who are signed up to a particular agenda and their slightly older managers who they have you know, frankly, running scared. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I think that is what's driving a lot of these complicated decisions, um, particularly in newsrooms, I think very similar dynamics as well. But I also do think your graduate training in Foucault is actually very helpful in understanding this because (laughs) Foucault and Derrida are sort of the the grandfathers of this movement. That's why it it was ironic. I don't know if you saw 
uh, Emmanuel Macron said that he didn't want um, American universities infecting French ones with their ideas. But really, it's just the reimportation of ideas that they gave to us. It's a sort of zeal for deconstruction, this obsession with power relations and these sorts of things. So anyway, your, your training is actually immensely helpful here. Well, I'm really glad it turned out to be helpful for something. Fasman, as we heard in the history segment, The Economist called peak political correctness rather early. Is this peak woke in your view? I don't think it is. I don't think that the the ideas that are sort of driving the illiberal left's zeal are drying up. I think the illiberal left knows that it has a lot of portions of the liberal left, of the old liberal left, on the run. And I, I see no reason why they would quit when they're ahead. Yeah, I agree. These ideas have a velocity behind them that they haven't before. And yeah. and there's no sign of them decelerating. Idris, what should more old style liberals who believe in the value of open debate do about any of this? Is there anything they can do? I, I do think that they need to embrace the actual marketplace of ideas and actually make the case for their side. I think that there is a bit of liberal ambivalence that's set in post um, Great Recession, you know, post Trump. And the the polarization that is extant in America means that you don't want to be seen as critiquing people who share your ends, even if you disagree with their means. And I think that that is something that needs to be discarded. People need to be more confident in, in their liberalism. But ultimately, this is a moment of, of cultural zeitgeist. And, and those things are not really easily rectified by policy. You don't want to go down the route that Republicans are going in many states, which is to say, well, okay, you can't teach critical race theory at all. Banning illiberalism by illiberal means, I don't think actually makes things any better. Yeah, I think you make a really good point that Donald Trump's political organization has just started selling a t-shirt that reads, everything woke turns to shit. Apologies for anyone who's listening with kids. And so I think if you are a Democrat, or if you're on the liberal side in American politics, you see the use that the Trumpian right is making of woke. And you think, well, I don't want to pile in and and criticize that set of ideas as well. That impulse, while understandable, I think is not helpful here. No, but it's incredibly powerful, I think. Okay, thank you both. Before I let you go, I have a quiz for you. The Economist first reported on a wave of political correctness sweeping through American universities in February 1991. The new student movement put our correspondent in mind of the Port Huron Declaration, a famous manifesto drafted by campus radicals in 1962. It was a critique of US aggression abroad and of racial discrimination and inequality at home. The students assembled on the edges of Lake Huron at a resort belonging to the United Auto Workers Union. Lake Huron is the third largest of the Great Lakes. What proportion of the world's surface fresh water did the Great Lakes contain? That is quite a twist. I have to say I didn't see that coming. No. I was thinking about <laughs> I have no I thought it was gonna be like Audre Lord. <laughs> you thought you were gonna get a question about what was in the Port Huron. Yeah. 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 Or who who led the UAW at the time? <laughs> What's I have ten uh, percent. You can get a bonus if you can tell me who led the UAW at the time. First, I think it was I'll Walter Reuter, that. wasn't it? I, I I would go higher than ten. I'd say like seventy. I love that. Seventy is bold. It is one fifth. So I think you split the difference there. The bridge at Port Huron is one of twenty connecting the U.S. to Canada. How many American states have a land border with another country? Uh, if you get it to the nearest. 10, I think you can have a point. 20. 20. Yeah. All the ones on top, all the ones on bottom. (laughs) The answer is 17. 13 have a border with Canada and four with Mexico. 
Uh, Florida also has a maritime border with Cuba and the Bahamas. Right, there you go. And Fassman, a quick Google tells me it was Walter Reuter, uh, so yeah. you get a bonus point for that. Um, my knowledge of labor history is much better than my knowledge of <laughs> freshwater resources. <laughs> okay, thank you, Idris. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to our producers, John Shields, Nico Rofast, and Amico Shortino-Nolan. And if you like the podcast, please come along to our live streamed event for Economist subscribers, which is coming up on the 9th of September. I'll be hosting with a panel of our finest to talk about the future of American power in the world 20 years on from the September 11th attacks. We'll be debating the legacy of that atrocity and the wars that followed and how American hard power should be used in the next 20 years. Subscribers can sign up at economist.com slash US power. That's economist.com slash US power. You'll find that link and the link to subscribe in the notes for this episode. Please tell your friends, leave a rating or better yet a review wherever you listen to us. You can also get in touch by email at podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.